This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire, and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com slash leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot com slash leaders. And what an hour it is shaping up to be. Tonight, we will be joined by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, who yesterday secured a conviction of the Trump Organization on 17 counts. Senator Cory Booker will be here to talk about Senator Raphael Warnock's big win in Georgia and what it means for history and the Democratic Party. And I will also be joined by former Obama Attorney General Eric Holder to discuss the once fringe legal theory that he says poses an existential threat to our democracy and was argued today before the Supreme Court. But first, suits and swords and wrestling belts. Suits, swords, and wrestling belts. Stay with me here. When it comes to the swords, plural, I think we have a good idea which ones they were. Most presidents make their first trips abroad to the countries that are physically closest to us, like Canada or Mexico, or they go to our closest allies, like the UK. But President Trump bucked that norm, and he made the incredibly unprecedented decision to make his debut trip abroad as president to Saudi Arabia. And on his first day on that first trip, before attending a state dinner at a Saudi royal palace, Trump was greeted like this, with a ceremonial men-only sword dance. It really is one of the best pieces of video to come out of the Trump administration, and that's saying a lot. But it is also only maybe the only photographic evidence we have of one of the swords that were gifted to President Trump on that trip to Saudi Arabia. According to the official State Department record of Trump's goodie bag, it included three daggers, one of which is being described as made of pure silver with a mother of pearl sheath, and three swords, one of which is presumably the one we see President Trump dancing awkwardly with right there in that video. I could keep playing that on loop, but we won't. And we can't say for certain, but we could not find any other record of swords. So we think those are probably the swords in question. And then there is the matter of the wrestling belts. This is Mike Tyson's belt. (laughs) This is Vince McMahon from the World Wrestling Federation. This is Shaquille O'Neal's shoe. President Trump really likes collector's items. We know this. In addition to Mike Tyson's belt and Vince McMahon's belt, we also know that President Trump was gifted this belt by a professional UFC fighter in 2018. And he was given this custom Make America Great Again wrestling belt at some point while he was in office. So we don't really know exactly which wrestling belts are in question here because Donald Trump simply owns too many of them and too many suits for that matter. But the reason we are talking about swords and suits and wrestling belts is because today the Washington Post was the first to report that lawyers for the former president, President Trump, have turned up at least two classified documents in one of Trump's storage units in West Palm Beach, Florida. A unit filled with, in addition to these classified documents, a unit filled with suits and swords and wrestling belts. Now, these are on top of the more than 300 classified documents we already knew President Trump had taken with him when he left the White House. At some point around Thanksgiving, an outside team hired by Trump's lawyers searched Mar-a-Lago and Trump Tower in New York City 
and Trump's Bedminster Club in New Jersey and then this storage unit in Florida. And now, almost two years after Trump left office, after having been caught lying multiple times already about having returned all of the classified documents he took, this team found two more, along with the swords and the suits and the wrestling belts. Trump's lawyers only conducted this search after being scolded by a judge to do so. And, like, of course there were more documents. Of course he lied about it. Of course they were strewn in there with swords and suits and wrestling belts. The question now is, what happens next? Will Trump actually be held accountable? What could determine that? Who could determine that? So far, in all the numerous investigations and scandals and inquiries and all the rest, there is one person who has been able to successfully hold Trump, or at least his organizations, accountable. By way of history here, let's go back to the wrestling belts, specifically the belt President Trump got from former chair and CEO of the WWE, Vince McMahon. In 2007, Trump participated in a WWE pay-per-view event called Battle of the Billionaires, because of course he did. At that event, Trump famously tackled Vince McMahon. You're so lucky we're playing all this videotape. There was a proxy wrestling match after that to settle a bet between Trump and McMahon, the loser of which would have to have his head shaven. It was quite a show. Now, of course, this was all staged. But that is not what is bad about this. What's bad about this is how Donald Trump got paid. Earlier this summer, in an investigation into McMahon by the WWE board itself, they found that President Trump was paid $5 million. But he wasn't paid that money directly. The money was paid to Trump's charity, the Trump Foundation. We, of course, know now that Trump's foundation was a fraud. In the words of the New York Attorney General, when the foundation's fraud was uncovered, the foundation functioned as little more than a checkbook to serve Mr. Trump's business and political interests. A checkbook that didn't have to deal with pesky little things like taxes. Of course, in the case of the Trump Foundation, Trump has faced accountability. The foundation was required to pay $2 million to other charities and was then forced to dissolve. It no longer exists. New York's attorney general decided to press charges and won. And the person who was in charge of that investigation, who actually got accountability from Donald Trump, was Alvin Bragg. Alvin Bragg is now the district attorney in Manhattan. And yesterday, he managed to hold President Trump accountable once again. Yesterday, President Trump's company, the Trump Organization, was convicted of tax fraud in the state of New York on all 17 counts it faced. Alvin Bragg ran that investigation, too, which was the first time the Trump Organization has been convicted of criminal conduct. The core of this case was that the Trump Organization had been systematically doing creative accounting, paying employees off the books with perks like tuition to private schools or free rent in expensive apartments, all while avoiding paying taxes, something any normal citizen would be prosecuted for. And in this case, Trump's company was, too. In this case, gravity worked. And it is not over. Today, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg described his office's investigation into President Trump as, quote, ongoing. He said he views the case against the Trump Organization as, quote, one chapter in the book, as far as this probe is concerned. Joining us now is the man himself, Alvin Bragg, Mr. District Attorney. Thank you for sitting through the wrestling videos and the sword dances, but it was all of a piece serving the point that you are one of the very few people in this country that has managed to hold Mr. Trump or at least his organizations accountable. Well, thanks for having me. 
the wrestling video in particular was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we um, <laughs> we didn't shy away from playing it, shall we say that. Um, what has stunned me in the case um, for which you got uh, a jury to convict on all counts is the excess of evidence that you had. Can you tell me a little bit about some of these pieces that the audience was treated to, the viewing audience, the jury, whoever, whoever you want to specify. Nonetheless, there is a memo signed and okayed by Donald Trump reducing staffer salary by $72,000. One assumes because he's going to be getting other perks from the organization. There's checks for thousands of dollars signed by President Trump to Columbia Grammar and Prep School paying for the tuition of employees. Were you surprised that the paper trail was this explicit? Well, you know, one of the great things about uh, a, a jury trial, which is, uh, you know, a centerpiece of, of our democracy, is the laying bare of evidence in open court. Uh, and so the public gets to see, in this instance, the inner workings of a you know, 13-year scheme, which was, you know, more than, you know, about greed and cheating and lying, all laid bare the inner workings of the Trump organization. So, look, the, the rigor of the investigation uh, was second to none. The the public service that worked on this and built the case, um, certainly indebted to for for what they brought and, and, and lining up that evidence and then presenting it uh, in a court of law leading to the, the conviction. So um, having worked on complex investigations for 20 plus years, um, you know, we follow the facts and uh, that's what happened here. And so not not surprised that things unfolded uh, as we thought they would in, in, in court. Obviously, in a trial, there's always a little bit of a twist and turn, um, but not surprised and, and, and gratified that, you know, one, the jury saw it as we did, but also the broader public got to see the inner workings of the Trump organization on display. Can you can you explain, as you understand it, what was the operating structure of this organization? Well, look, you know, fundamentally, I mean, the, the, the name is in the title, right? So there's the Trump organization, there are two uh, uh, Trump corporations that were um, on trial here. Uh, and the the core of the conduct was you know, senior officials in the in the corporations uh, being given benefits uh, and not paying taxes on them. And the issue that the defense sort of really honed in on was, well, okay, it's just those it's just those those folks. Um, this was not for the benefit of the corporation, and so that became a significant issue in the trial. And us, us you know, laying out, so well, okay, you know. Who hired these folks? I mean, who went through the documents, and and, and what were their, their level in the organization? These were not mid-level or level. These were these were high managerial agents, as the as the, as the law calls them. Uh, and so, you know, that all of that of a piece put together, um, you know, obviously it wasn't in the jury room, but I think that's uh, you know we, we viewed as as essential to so sort of rebutting the sort of claim from the defense that. You know, nothing to see here. Just mm -hmm. a couple of rogue employees. It's hard to have a, a rogue CFO. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's someone who's reporting directly in um, literally in the C-suite, as we would call it. Is it your understanding that it was effectively a culture of fraud that started from the top down? Well, you know, certainly in this instance, something that goes 13 years. That's a, a quite a long period of time uh, and, and is engaged in by people at the highest levels of the organization. Um, sufficient to, and in this instance did happen, for corporate liability, right? So this was a, a case against the corporations uh, and, and certainly was sufficient. The, the jury found so. Uh, and so that, that's what this was about. And, we, you know, we think we, well, we know at this point now is that we have a conviction.
Do you, the, Alan Weisselberg is, was the star witness in all of this, and he is going to face some jail time. He gave you a, a lot of information in exchange for a reduced jail sentence. Can you tell us a little bit, in a little bit more detail about what is his expected sentence is, and will he be serving it at Rikers Island? Sure. So, you know, having done this for some time, something that I found to be really important, uh, not essential, but important in the telling of this kind of a, a scheme is a, is a narrator, an, an inside voice. Uh, and so we thought that was important here. Uh, as you said, he entered a plea of, of, of guilty, uh, agreed to testify truthfully, and he was a big piece of giving us sort of that sort of in, inner workings so we could see it. Um, you're right. He's now the next next step is to him. He's going to be sentenced. That is up to the judge mm-hmm. uh, ultimately. But, you know, if you are if you are sentenced to, um, you know, um, in, in the city, you know, Rikers is our is our city uh, jail. And so if he's city to jail time, which we expect it will be five months or six months, uh, then that that time would customarily be served in Rikers. Uh, which is not known as a pleasant place to spend time. There's been a lot of investigation into the way inmates have been treated at Rikers. There's a lot of violence at Rikers. Uh, this is something I'm sure Mr. Weisselberg is not looking forward to. And yet there is some talk that because your investigation thus far has not indicted President Trump and because there is this evidence that we showed at the beginning of our segment with his name on some of these documents— that Mr. Weisselberg could actually be used as leverage, that he could be pushed potentially even further in an investigation into Mr. Trump himself. Is that um, barking up the wrong tree, as it were, if, if one thinks that that is something that could happen? Look, we, we follow the facts where they take us. Yeah. And, you know, here, uh, the, the, ne- the nature of the cooperation was testified truthfully yeah. uh, as to these transactions, this tax fraud um, and it was limited there. Uh, you know, it, it was something that that certainly in other cases I've done um, broader cooperation. Um, you know, that's something that, um, you know, ultimately is up to Mr. Weisselberg, right? Mm-hmm. That decision uh, whether or not to, uh, to 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 share more. If, in fact, there's more for him to share. We will continue to follow the facts as your lead uh, talked about. I said this is a chapter in the book, a consequential chapter, you know, mm-hmm. conviction for uh, you know, corporations, uh, you know, founded by a former president, uh, but but a chapter. Uh, and we've had another team while you've seen the stupendous team led by uh, Susan Hoffinger and Joshua Steinglass in court. Uh, we've had other members of the team who weren't in court who've been uh, continuing the broader investigation. So we'll go with the facts. Take us. We will. Uh, people have things of, of interest to us. We will certainly listen. What is your message to other people who are investigating the former president right now? There's a lot of swirl. I, should people feel emboldened by the conviction that you won yesterday? I have no message. I'm a, I'm a, I've been doing this for about yeah. 20 plus years. Um, I'm a former federal prosecutor. So as you, your lead talks about the, what the Department of Justice is doing, um, those are accomplished uh, lawyers. I know now we have a special counsel who happens to be an alum of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Uh, but they're, they're, they're doing their investigations. We're doing ours. We'll proceed apace. I'm sure they're doing what we're doing, which is following the facts. Um, they're distinct investigations, uh, as I understand them, about different pieces of conduct. Uh, and so um, we're going to do our job. We're going to follow the facts as they apply to conduct in Manhattan. And my, my uh, having worked for the Department of Justice and the New York State Attorney General's Office, um, um, my, my understanding and what I would expect to happen is that uh, others doing the other investigations will follow the facts where they take them um, within their jurisdiction. Well, you have thus far managed to do something that few have, which is to hold the Trump 
uh, businesses accountable. A, a Trump, whether it's an organization or a charity, has been held accountable by you and the efforts of those in your office. So congratulations on doing so. I think a lot of the American public is eager to know how this book that you are working on ends. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. District Attorney. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Coming up, former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder joins me to discuss a controversial legal theory that could upend democracy as we know it. But first, Senator Raphael Warnock was back in Washington, D.C. today after winning his insanely high-stakes runoff election. Senator Cory Booker weighs in on that victory right after the break. Stay with us. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The last time it happened was in 1934. It was the middle of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first term in office. FDR had already signed into law much of the New Deal. The economy was growing again for the first time since the start of the Great Depression. And every incumbent Democratic senator kept his seat. That kind of Senate victory for the party in the White House never happened again until last night when Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock won re-election. I am Georgia. I am, I am an example and an iteration of its history, of its pain and its promise, of the brutality and the possibility. But because this is America, because we always have a path to make our country greater against, against unspeakable odds, here we stand together. Thank you, Georgia. Last night, Georgia made history a couple times over. In re-electing Warnock, Georgia elected its first full-term black senator, and it ensured that all incumbent Democratic senators kept their seats while expanding the Democratic majority in the Senate. Today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer welcomed Senator Warnock back to the Capitol for a bit of a victory lap. From the top of the Capitol steps, Warnock announced Georgia did it again. Earlier in the day, before he stood outside the Capitol, Schumer made clear why he thinks Democrats were able to make history. MAGA Republicans. Schumer argued that voters thought MAGA Republicans had gone too far that the January 6th hearings this summer and the Supreme Court's ruling on Dobbs, that those showed voters that that wing of the Republican Party was something to worry about. And the man who represented that branch of the party in last night's runoff was, of course, longtime Trump buddy Herschel Walker. 
who first entered the political arena during the 2020 Republican National Convention to deliver this very important message about his friend. It hurt my soul to hear the terrible names that people call Donald. The worst one is racist. I take it as a personal insult that people would think I've had a 37 year friendship with the racist. People who think that don't know what they're talking about. Growing up in the deep South, I've seen racism up close. I know what it is. And it isn't Donald Trump. That statement from Herschel Walker came two months after Black Lives Matter protesters were gassed out of D.C.'s Lafayette Square just before Trump made his way there for a photo op holding the Bible as a prop. It was the same summer Trump incessantly called for law and order while racial justice protests spread nationwide. That is the person who endorsed Walker and recently campaigned for him, which makes Walker yet another one of Trump's failed candidates. And it also shows yet again the failings of the Republican Party on whole. As the Republican Party has scrambled to sort out some kind of anti-racist message in a party whose leader has been known to give white supremacy a seat at the table, quite literally, the reality is that the Democratic Party is sending back to the upper chamber the first black senator from the state of Georgia. It is extending the tenure of the 11th black senator in the chamber's history, and it is solidifying a diverse coalition. The people who voted for Raphael Warnock, who stood in those hours-long lines in a truncated runoff period, they were black people, they were mixed-race people, and Asian people, and Hispanic people, and white people. That is the coalition Raphael Warnock is representing. If Raphael Warnock is Georgia, he is also the Democratic Party. And joining us now is one of the 11 black people ever to sit in the Senate who also is in the Democratic Party. Our senator from New Jersey, Cory Booker. Senator Booker, it's great to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being with us to discuss this moment in American history. It really does feel like an inflection point as we think about these two parties. And I wonder what, you, what, what lesson you think people should take away from the events of last night as it concerns Democrats and Republicans. Well, there's not just one lesson. There's a lot of things uh, that worked in Raphael Warnock's favor from, as Mitch McConnell said, we have a candidate selection problem uh, to the fact that we got so much done. Here's a guy two years in the Senate, and he was able to get extraordinary things done. As I joked with Sherrod Brown today, he said he got a call after we passed the child tax credit, the biggest middle class tax credit in all of American history that went to 90 percent of Americans with children. And uh, Sherrod had been working on his whole career. Raphael was joking with him, hey, man, I, I got it done in my first few months. <laughs> um, so he led a lot of big bills, bipartisan bills. And that's another thing that's really important. Uh, in addition to that, we have a nation that has been showing state after state that this right wing MAGA overreach, whether it's seen in the Dobbs decision and the uh, bans on abortion, uh, even in cases of rape and incest, all the way to the insulting things that have been done to try to limit people's access to, to voting. And so a lot of these things lined up, uh, but I think the perhaps the biggest one that I don't see being talked about enough is just how of an amazing person that Raphael Warnock is. Yeah, he's one of the 11 black people that serve, but this institution has never seen someone like him. He is a pastor of Martin Luther King's church I think he's the only of the hundred of us that was arrested protesting in the Senate for the expansion of health care. He is a moral leader first, not a politician. And I think that now that he has a full term, 
his already extraordinary first two years uh, are going to seem pale in comparison, the kind of grandeur that he's going to bring at a time that we are in a moral moment in America and need more moral leaders uh, that can raise our, uh, their voices and speak to the moral imagination of a country. I think that that's so well said, and you're so right, that I don't think folks have really, we haven't spent enough time discussing the singularity of Reverend Warnock. But I have to ask you, because race has been such a, an impor- important, unspoken, over, over-examined, I mean, it's many different things in this race in a lot of different ways. But race has played very much into the Georgia uh, runoff, not just because there are two black men that are running for the seat and inevitably Georgia was going to send a black man to the Senate no matter who won. But because of the curious relationship, especially between the Republican Party and its candidate. And I, I want to read an excerpt from a just absolutely searing indictment of the party that was published in The Atlantic, written by Caroline Randall Williams today. And I want to have your thoughts on it. Um, she writes, Walker's candidacy is a fundamental assault by the Republican Party on the dignity of black Americans. How dare they so cynically use this buffoon as a shield for their obvious failings to meet the needs and expectations of black voters? They hold him up and say, see, our voters don't mind his race. We're not a racist party. We have black people on our side, too. Parading Walker at rallies is like some kind of blue ribbon livestock, as some, like some kind of blue ribbon livestock, does not mean you have black people on your side. What it means is that you are promoting a charlatan, a man morally and intellectually bereft enough, blithely egomaniacal enough to sing and dance on the world stage against his own best interests. Is he in on the joke? Does he know they picked him to save money on boot black and burnt cork? Is that fair? Is that right? Is that how the Republican Party should be held accountable for the Herschel Walker candidacy? Well, there is a schism in our country, and I think the Republican Party will either fall as a result of this, or it is going to struggle to find redemption. And Unfortunately, uh, the last few years, as many people have left the Republican Party, um, I don't think it's rising to this moment in history. And and I'll be explicit. Raphael Warnock gave a great speech about being elected on January 5th uh, and seeing this incredible moment where the cradle of the Confederacy, the former cradle of the Confederacy, put forth the first ever black person and Jewish person uh, from, uh, from Georgia to represent them in the Senate. And he said he was feeling good, invited on all these TV shows, was even sitting there chewing with Whoopi Goldberg on The View on January 6th. But then the Capitol was overrun. And I, I was very aware on that day what so much of those, those folks that attacked the Capitol were about. Because they wore Camp Auschwitz t-shirts and had blatantly anti-Semitic symbols. They were calling the black officers uh, the N-word repeatedly. If you talk to them and listen to the kind of uh, insults and indignities heaped upon them, the racist language that was used. And of course, the first image I saw when I finally got to a safe location and turned on the TV was the Confederate flag. And so you're you're seeing this uh, far-right extremism that is manifesting itself in this rise of hate crimes, a rise of anti-Semitic violence in our country, a rise in attacks on mosques and sick uh, temples. And we're seeing schisms of hate. And, and that's why Warnock, to me, is the right leader in the right moment. Because these lines, as W.B. Du Bois said, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. We are at a 
inflection point in our country where instead of turning against each other along racial lines, we need to turn to each other and realize that, yes, there are powerful cords and threads of different races and religions to our country, but ultimately, can we weave together one fabric and save ourselves? We are a nation in need of each other, yet we are seeing a heightening in, in folks that want to rip us asunder. And the Republican Party is being tested right now. Uh, and I fear that as having a president that said there are good people on both sides when Nazis were marching failed that test. And those folks who are have this allegiance to him and that far mark MAGA ideals that don't yet at the same time understand that racism like that is not a threat to black people simply. It is a threat to the very idea of America, that we can rise and be a light unto all nations as a truly multicultural, multi-religious uh, democracy. I, one more question. I mean, Raphael Warnock will be back in the Senate for six years. Blessedly, the reverend does not have to run again for some time. Yes. You are going to have yes. him as a compatriot in your caucus, but you're also on the other side of the aisle going to have the entrance of someone like J.D. Vance. Ron Johnson got reelected. Josh Hawley is still there. When you talk about you know, moderating the Republican Party, the idea that the Republican Party is facing a test. Are you confident that lessons will be learned here? Is there anything that people like you and Raphael Warnock can do to help moderate or show the Republican Party the light, as it were? Well, I, you know, when I think of the Republican Party, I, I don't see often my colleagues on either side of the aisle. They may be the elected representatives, but 70 percent of this country wants common uh, sense things like Roe v. Wade. 70 percent of this country or more, actually 80 plus percent of NRA members want common sense gun safety laws. I could go through all of these things, capping prescription drugs, which Raphael Warnock helped lead at thirty five dollars for insulin. Um, majority Republicans want that. The child tax credit, wildly popular with Republicans. So we as Americans, the lines that divide us in Congress are not the lines that divide us in this nation. In fact, we have more ties that bind us than lies that divide, lines that divide us. And so this is a moment in America where I, for one, want the Democratic Party to begin uh, to claim where most of America is on these issues. Um, and I think that getting too obsessed with the sort of uh, uh, members that you mentioned undermines the, the larger mission in this country, which is not just to herald the party, uh, but is to achieve justice. And I am so happy that Raphael Warnock is one of these people that does not speak party first. He speaks justice, grace, mercy, and redemption first. Values that are just as much American values as they are human values. And as I teased him, uh, he is historic. Uh, you say 11 uh, black senators. Since Reconstruction, I have, I'm only the fourth popularly elected African-American ever in the United States Senate before me, it was Barack Obama. Uh, but I was teasing uh, uh, Warnock today because we saw Fetterman win. Mark Kelly won a close election. Raphael Warnock. I'm surprised, uh, Alex, you didn't mention at all that all of us are bald men uh, <laughs> and that bald is back. I have to say that as well. That should be the takeaway from this election season. <laughs> bald is back. Senator Cory Booker, you wear it well, my friend. Thank you for your time this evening. It's great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. May we bring healing. May, may Raphael Warnock, who is a healer, uh, bring healing to our nation. We have a lot of work to do. This is a moral moment. Amen.
Coming up next, three conservative Supreme Court justices have signaled that they could accept a fringe legal theory currently being considered by the high court, one that could have major consequences for how elections are carried out in the U.S. Former Attorney General Eric Holder will join me to discuss right after the break. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Congressional Gold Medal is considered Congress's highest expression of national appreciation for distinguished achievements and contributions. Yesterday, police officers who defended the Capitol on January 6th came to the Capitol Rotunda to receive that very honor. You can see the family members of those officers, including the family of slain officer Brian Sicknick. You can see them shaking hands with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi as they exit the stage. And then, and then they get to the outstretched hands of Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. And there are no handshakes given. Now, we can't know exactly what was running through these families' minds, but the fact of the matter is that while Republicans like McConnell and McCarthy have sought to separate themselves from the anti-democratic mob violence that we saw on January 6th, they and their party still very much champion anti-democratic tactics. Whether that's giving a platform to extremists who promote the big lie or whether that is embracing anti-democratic theories to undermine legitimate elections, that is what the Republican Party is doing right now. And today the party is doing it with help from the conservative justices that Senator McConnell installed on the Supreme Court. Today the justices heard oral arguments in a case called Moore v. Harper. It is a case that could upend American democracy as we know it. At the heart of the case is something called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, That's an obscure legal theory that would allow state legislatures to override their state court systems and their governors in order to create their own election rules. Now, this fringe theory was the basis for a scheme concocted by Trump lawyer John Eastman, who was trying to get states to send false slates of electors to Washington to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And now Republican state legislators from North Carolina are trying to get the courts to declare that extreme legal theory the law of the land. The case itself revolves around North Carolina Republicans' attempt to gerrymander their congressional districts ahead of the 2022 midterms. The North Carolina Supreme Court threw out Republicans' heavily gerrymandered maps, and normally that would be the end of it. But North Carolina Republicans decided to use the insurrectionists' favorite fringe legal theory, that would be the independent state legislature doctrine, to say they didn't have to listen to their state's highest court. They were effectively saying, hey, under our state constitution, 
The North Carolina Supreme Court has a final say. But under this legal theory, we don't have to listen to the courts or the governor or anybody. Really, we can do whatever we want. Checks and balances be damned. At least three Supreme Court justices, Alito, Thomas and Gorsuch, have already signaled that they are open to turning that theory into legally binding precedent. And that would have massive implications, not just for gerrymandering, but for American democracy on whole. Under a muscular reading of this legal theory, Republican-controlled legislatures would be the ultimate authority here, not just on gerrymandering, but on how elections themselves are decided. They could theoretically send fake slates of electors to Congress or just refuse to certify an election altogether. After watching this conservative-dominated Supreme Court take extreme positions on everything from abortion to gun safety to environmental protections— How do we deal with the fact that they now hold the very fate of democracy in their hands? I'll ask former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder that very question and a few more coming up next. Today, the Supreme Court heard oral oral arguments in Moore v. Harper, a redistricting case from North Carolina that could upend federal elections. It is an appeal of a case in which North Carolina's Supreme Court found the state's Republican-drawn congressional map was partisan and unconstitutional. At the heart of the case before the Supreme Court is the so-called independent state legislature theory. That argues state legislatures should have absolute authority over federal elections and electoral maps. Before the start of arguments this morning, former Attorney General Eric Holder, who now chairs the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, released a statement saying, in part, North Carolina Republicans are using a truly fringe legal theory to try to undermine our system of checks and balances— an extreme and dangerous move in response to the North Carolina Supreme Court decision that held them accountable for violating the state constitution. That should not be a difficult decision for the court in favor of the respondents, one that would protect voters against extreme efforts to manipulate federal elections. Anything less than that is unacceptable. Joining us now is the man himself, Eric Holder, former U.S. Attorney General under President Barack Obama and now chair of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Mr. Holder, thank you so much for being here, even if the subject matter we're talking about should be ringing national alarm bells. What do you think is going to happen here on the court? It seems as if it's possible that they take a more minimalist ruling on this, but that sounds like it could still be fairly detrimental to U.S. elections. How do you see this unfolding? Yeah, I don't think there's any middle ground here. I don't think there's any minimalist um, decision. This is a theory that has no basis in, in law, no basis in history. It is some, simply a tool that has been devised by partisans, by Republicans, to try to uh, subvert a, a core part of our democratic system, and that is our system of checks and balances. What they are, in essence, saying is that state legislatures have the ability to, to gerrymander, to their heart's content and do things that are inconsistent with the state constitution, in this case, North Carolina, and not have courts have the ability to look at that which the legislature has done uh, and and call them on it and force them to do as they did in North Carolina, force them to draw new maps. I mean, when they came up with their original map, they wanted to propose a map that would have 10 Republicans, four Democrats, and a state is roughly, you know, 50-50. When asked about it, one of their uh, one of the Republicans down there said, well, they asked him, why'd you do a 10-4 map? He said, because we couldn't draw an 11-3 to map. So that gives you a sense of their of their mindset. 
Supreme Court says that's inconsistent with the North Carolina Constitution. Redraw the maps. The maps are done in a fair way. And what do we get out of North Carolina? A seven to seven split in the congressional delegation. That's something that they did not like. And they said, all right, we'll take this to the Supreme Court on this ridiculous, bogus, fringe theory, the independent state legislature doctrine. And for any member of the court to put his or her name uh, behind a decision, even if it's a dissenting opinion, uh, to say that there is some validity to this theory, I think really calls into question, um, you know, where that justice is uh, is coming from. Yeah, well, to that end, I mean, even if it's a narrow ruling, Justice Kagan today expressed concerns about it being used to fuel further conspiracies like the fake elector scheme. If if the court does not stake out a very clear position on this, how concerned are you that it could be weaponized in elections down the line to support theories like the one proposed by John Eastman to allow states to send fake electors in to Congress? But that's exactly the point. We're not talking about something theoretical. We only have to look at that which the January 6th committee um, has exposed that shows that John Eastman wanted to use this very theory as a way to subvert the peaceful transfer of power. Now, it is not this is, you know, the case before the court deals with gerrymandering in North Carolina in one state. But this theory could also be used in the way that John Eastman um, proposed. And so, as I think Neil Kital described it, he said that the, you know, the, the, the collateral damage that could be done by an inappropriate decision here is pretty vast. Uh, our, our democracy could be harmed in extremely substantial ways. Do you have a sense of dread? I mean, for everybody who's watched what the court has done in the last year, I mean, some people think it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to support this in some way. Do you have a similar amount of trepidation? I really don't, um, because I, I think this this truly would be a bridge too far. Um, you know, if you look at those who have come out in against this independent state legislature nonsense, you have former Republican governors, you have the conference of um, state Supreme Court justices, you have uh conservative legal scholars, including a, a one of the co-founders of the Federalist Society, you have former Republican judges, conservative judges, uh, all of the people who I think these folks would look up to and who they look for to for for guidance or their supporters. Everybody is against um, this this theory. Only people on the fringe. And I really mean that people need to understand that only people on the fringe are supportive of this uh, of this extremely dangerous democracy threatening uh, theory. Because you mentioned January 6th and because you mentioned the fringe and because you are a former attorney general, I have to ask you about comments made by January 6th committee member Adam Schiff today saying he believed that President Trump, let me get this correct, has committed a crime. Now, we know the January 6th committee is going to be making criminal referrals to the DOJ as someone who once worked at the DOJ. How much weight does something like the January 6th committee's criminal referral have? How much if they, in fact, refer, for example, President Trump uh, for criminal indictment, how much weight would that carry at the DOJ? Could you give perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly something that would be taken into account. But I think the more important thing is for the Justice Department to get from the January 6th committee uh, all of the material that it has accumulated during the course of its inquiry. Um, you know, interviews, 
um, taped interviews, witness transcripts, any evidence that they have um, that they have gathered. That is the material that the Justice Department um, will use in making a determination as to whether or not the former president should be um, indicted. But I, I don't want to, you know, in any way uh, minimize the importance of what the committee appears ready to do, which is to make these criminal referrals. I mean, I think that is something um, that the American people need to uh, look at, need to examine and understand the seriousness um, of, of that act. A committee, a bipartisan committee of of Congress, looking at all the material that they have accumulated and presented to the American people, will have will have made a determination that some people should be held criminally um, criminally liable. That is that's a big thing. It is a big deal indeed. Eric Holder, former Attorney General of the United States, now Chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for your time and wisdom. We'll be right back. That does it for us tonight. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.